I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Luke Williams, who's the Professor of Innovation for the NYU Stern School of Business. Luke, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Mike. <laughs> uh, I always I always love this show because I get to reconnect with friends that I've met in random places. And for us, I know, we, we actually first met, you remember, in Oslo, Norway. That's right, Oslo, Norway. So two Australians, um, <laughs> me from Melbourne, you from Sydney, um, didn't meet in Australia. We had to meet in a Scandinavian country. It was like a rock concert that uh, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. event. You remember, it was like two thousand people in the room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a very difficult stage, from what I remember. Like the stage, and it had these. It was like a it was football like a, stadium, yeah, right? or a coliseum or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, we we had a good time, and you know, it, it's it's great to we're here now, in, of course, in New York, um, and you've got a new edition of your book coming out. Yes, yeah, second edition of the book's coming out in a couple of weeks. So the the it's the book's called Disrupt, and. And, uh, the subtitle is Think the Unthinkable to Spark um, Innovation in Your Business. And, and really, the first, the first edition of the book, Mike, as you know, was really about uh, process. So this is like, how, how do you actually engage people in disruptive thinking? But what I found, and the book came out about four years ago, um, in the time since, I had so many conversations, you know, at these speaking events and other things with executives and managers and they really had a lot of questions around how do I lead the process and how do I lead other people to do the process. So um, that's what I wrote about in the second edition of the book. I added a new section really on um, on the leadership aspects of disruption which I called the disruptive leader. It's fascinating how this, I, this word disruption has evolved. Um, because I think the first time I ever saw it when I was a kid, and so I had to look it up because someone wrote in my report card I was a disruptive influence in the class. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it's sort of now taken a life on its own, and to the extent that there's almost some fatigue around the concept as well. Oh, for sure. You know, when I started talking about the book, uh, the word you had to justify the word disruption as a positive and not a negative. So there was still confusion around that, even though uh, you know in academic circles and and now in business, a lot of people are familiar with the concept of disruptive innovation which was first uh, you know, articulated by Clayton Christensen in the mid-90s. But still, I mean, and I'm talking about 2011 here, people still view disruption as a negative word. Now we're actually seeing where it's, it's become a positive word, meaning you know, you've got news programs on just about every channel with a disruption segment and talking about new tech businesses. But you bring up an interesting point about fatigue. A lot, I sense a lot of disruption fatigue out there or innovation fatigue. You know, people just going, oh, I'm so sick of being told that i got to change everything up all the time. You know, why? By a and, bloody Australian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, not just me, by everybody. You know, and I, I don't see the point. Um, so, you know, I came across a funny article uh, once with the headline, it's time to disrupt the disruptors. So, I don't, you know, I don't... I don't take it for granted that any of the students that I work with or the executives I, I work with have actually have a vested interest in disruption and innovation, but I, I do take it for granted that you know, executives and students alike have a vested interest in growth, you know, growth, professional development growth, growth of their skill set, uh, their knowledge base, 
space, uh, growth of their business, growth of the industry they're working in, even, you know, even growth of the overall economies uh, within which they work. Now, if they've got a vested interest in growth, and if your listeners have a vested interest in growth in any of its form, forms, they have to have a vested interest in innovation and disruption because it's innovation that drives growth. Yeah. And, and this is a subtle difference, I think, because when we first started talking about it, it was really like taking an ice pick to your traditional models. Uh, but of course, now, if you're the CEO of a company like Volkswagen, um, you probably have all the disruption that you can handle. And, and what you're actually looking for is what's your path to, as you say, new growth. Right. So growth... The, there was an economist uh, that I work with at NYU Stern called Paul Romer, and, and uh, when Paul was at uh, the University of Chicago, um, you know, about 15 years ago, he formulated uh, a new theory of how innovation relates to growth. And the layman's term for this theory is new growth theory, but the official term is endogenous growth theory. Now that sounds complicated, and if you if your listeners did a Google image search of endogenous growth theory, they'd find a, you know, a whole lot of abstract mathematical equations. But at its premise, um, it's a very simple idea, and that is that uh, the world of things, tangible things, and the world of ideas, so intangible ideas, they do not work the same way. Right. Um, so the world of tangible things is subject to diminishing returns, whereas the world of intangible ideas is not. It's... Uh, it's subject to increasing returns. There's no inherent scarcity. So I often use something, think about it as something as simple as a chair. So we're both sitting down in chairs, right? So I'm, this, this chair meets my user need at the moment. This tangible chair is, is fantastic. Um, I can sit down, this is great. Now, if somebody comes up and offers me a second chair right now, you know, what am I gonna do with that? Maybe I could put my feet on it. Uh, if somebody then comes up and says, Luke, you look so happy with two chairs. Obviously, a third chair is going to make you even you know, more ecstatic. And I'll say, well, that's very generous of you. Thank you. But what on earth am I going to do with a third chair right now? Um, so one chair is highly valuable to me. You know, two chairs, not so much. Three chairs, completely useless to me right now. Um, and the fabric on the chairs we're sitting on, maybe it breaks down over time. Maybe a leg breaks off it. Maybe the chairs go out of fashion. So everything in the material world is subject to diminishing returns. Now the difference here is the idea of a chair. And we define ideas as the recipes that you use to rearrange things to create new value and wealth. Now the recipe for a chair, and there is one of course, it was just invented so long ago we've all forgotten about it, but how you take raw materials out of the ground, how you mold those materials into components, how you assemble the components in the form of a chair, how you get the chair out of the distribution system and out to customers, the recipe for a chair becomes more valuable uh, the more it's used or the more it's consumed. Because it's also connected to the idea of sitting and how the idea of sitting interacts with the idea of you know sitting down for dinner. So it, it's quite international to other ideas as well. Well, that's right. And the thing about sitting in a chair is that you're the only one who can sit in that chair right now. Right. Right? Unless somebody comes and sits in your lap. But if you're using it, no one else can use it. Knowledge does not work that way. So I can give you my knowledge. It means you benefit from my knowledge and I've still got it. So I don't lose anything by sharing my knowledge with you. So this is, this is the realm of increasing returns. And, and you know, this all sounds pretty abstract, but it's important because it means that any energy that, you know, people expend in generating a constant stream of bold new recipes, new ideas, you know, in their lives, in their careers, in their businesses, 
it's never time wasted because they're in the realm of increasing returns. So most of these new recipes that they try, most of these new ideas, you know, they're going to fail. They're not going to be as successful as the old recipes, the traditional recipes, but that hardly means they're worthless because from every idea and every new recipe, every new experiment, you learn something new. That leads to the next idea. So knowledge begets knowledge, ideas beget no, uh, ideas. There seems to be elements of which digital infrastructure has properties that are closer to the the world of ideas and the world of tangible things. I mean, when you when you look at some of the successful, often cited case studies of innovation like Uber and Airbnb, they couldn't have existed if they hadn't built on the top of other pre-existing services. There was no sort of diminishing returns, you know, with, with, with access to that infrastructure. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's that's the whole concept behind platforms. You know, you'll often hear the venture capitalists, they're, they're not looking for just a mere application. They're looking for uh, the idea of a platform. And that gets, you know, that's a very old definition of innovation, meaning um, disruptive innovation happens at the fundamental level. So at the right. platform level, not the app level. You know, we get, so I run the entrepreneurship uh, center at the business school, and we, we, we get roughly 1,200 students through the center every year. Um, they form roughly 250 teams. You know, they work for eight months coming up with new business uh, concepts. Now, most of those business concepts, like 90% of them, will be apps for something. Right. What we're trying to encourage, we're trying to uh, increase the ratio of people actually working on fundamental innovation, meaning actually not coming up with another app, but coming up with an entirely new platform, because that's what's going to generate a whole lot of new apps. What makes something a platform versus an app? Because I know a lot of apps at some point try to turn themselves into platforms. I mean, so it's not just Uber anymore, it's a distribution platform that brings you dinner, your shopping, e-commerce. Is it just about, you know, scaling up the size of the problem you're trying to solve? Well, let me use a contemporary definition. Some of your listeners may be familiar with this book, and this is called Zero to One, uh, written by a guy called Peter Thiel. Right, yes. So Peter was um, one of the founders of PayPal, part of the PayPal Mafia. They call him the (laughs) PayPal Mafia because all all the... all the people involved have gone on to found other Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he was also the an early, or I think the first investor in Facebook, and he did okay out of that. Um, but anyway, he came out with a, a book called Zero to One. It's a contemporary definition, I think, of, of what we're talking about, which he calls uh, incremental innovation, um, horizontal innovation. Meaning, right. if you've got one typewriter, if somebody's invented a typewriter, it's easy to make a, a hundred other typewriters. So you can think of the, the typewriter as the platform. Right? It's very easy to just create more applications for that platform that you've established. So we call that one to the nth. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum is what he refers to as vertical innovation, which is how do you go from a typewriter to a word processor? Right. So a word processor is a different platform. And then once you've got that new platform, you can do a hundred new sort of variations on the word processor. And he calls that zero to one, hence the name of the book. Now, this has a lot uh, in common with other, other definitions of entrepreneurship and innovation, uh, at least in academic terms. So. In uh, Joseph Schumpeter was a famous economist that coined the phrase creative destruction and he, he made the distinction between replicative entrepreneurship so it's easy to teach people to open a shoe store for instance right plenty of people have opened shoe stores before just about every school in the world or at least America and the developed uh, developed economies can teach people how to open a shoe store best practices for a small business 
Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is what he defined as innovative entrepreneurship. So this is this is coming up with completely new products, services, business models that the world hasn't seen before. Now. Uh, the contention at the moment is hardly any school in America um, knows how to teach innovative entrepreneurship. Um, and that's what we're focused on at the school. We have really put a stake in the ground and said we're, we're trying to codify and work out how to create more innovative entrepreneurs. So people coming up with these, um, these new platforms, new product service business models that the world hasn't tried before. There's a mental element of this that reminds me a bit of uh, competitive sports mm-hmm. in that you know, when there's a record in place, uh, like whether it's kind of you know beating the 10 second mile or whatever it is you know then no one does it until someone does and then like everyone then breaks it successively very easily do you, do you find something similar that there's a very strong mental or mind state required for this kind of innovation yeah absolutely I um, I think mindset is critical and and you're right um, we often see this and this this is known as a paradigm shift honestly right. and it came through uh, Thomas Kuhn's definition of you know how scientific revolutions happen, because often when new ideas come out, they're dismissed. If a, a truly, if an idea is truly disruptive, it is normally dismissed straight away because the people judging the idea are judging it within the old framework or the old paradigm. Hmm. Uh, until shuff, such a shift takes place, and the evidence is so strong that you know there's been a shift in consumer behaviour or something, that a new paradigm actually takes place, and then they can evaluate this idea within the new framework. So a great example of this is, and I, I love this example because I remember when the idea was being pitched around, everyone thought it was absolutely crazy. Like, what a stupid idea. Like, nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to do this. And of course, I'm talking about Airbnb. Oh, thank God, if they go to our powdered alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, yeah, that, that's still lurking around. Still lurking around. But, you know, my parents in Australia are all talking about Airbnb now, and, you know, their friends are renting out their bedrooms. That's and when you the know the ideas jump the shark. Exactly right. <laughs> almost. But I remember, you know, when that was first being pitched around, 15 A-list venture capitalists passed on that idea. You know, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, which is one of the best startup schools um, in the country, is quoted as saying, you know, this idea is crazy. I would never do this. Why? Why? N- nobody's going to do this. Um, in fact, the only thing that saved the company was that the founders uh, they couldn't get any money. They were running out of money. They decided that they were going to put uh, the idea of breakfast um, in the concept because the original concept was air bed and breakfast. So they tried to capitalise on the election fever but, uh, that was happening at the time of the Obama and McCain election. So they decided to come up with two breakfast cereals, Obama O's and Crunchy McCain's. So what they, what they did is they, they went and bought uh, just regular breakfast cereals. They, they ripped the cereal out of the boxes. They created their own boxes, found somebody to hot glue the tops, and they sold them for 40 bucks a pop. This enabled them to get $30,000 together, keep them afloat until Paul Graham actually was the first investor from Y Combinator, actually said, well, these guys have actually got enough mojo to keep themselves afloat. I'm going to invest in them. But I don't think he was still wrapped with the idea. He was just betting on the, on the, on the entrepreneurs themselves at that point. But now, because of the shift that we've seen in the sharing economy, you know, what once was what was once judged as a bad idea, like, you know, how on earth are you going to operate like a hotel chain without owning any of the hotels, mm. is now, now that we've, you know, we've seen this shift in how people consider owning things, the concept of ownership, um, 
through the sharing economy. Now an idea like Airbnb, where you don't have to own a hotel to operate like a hotel chain, now it's seen as a completely valid idea because the framework has changed, the paradigm has changed. I still don't like other people's bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm with you that, that, that I, I think it's very difficult um, at the time to, as you say, have the paradigm to be able to interpret correctly whether an idea is good or not. But if you're starting with a clean sheet of paper and you're trying to teach someone that kind of breakthrough thinking, what are the elements or components that, that bring discipline to that process rather than sort of just accidental serendipity and, uh, and people willing to back you? Yeah, well, this is a great question, Mike. I mean, all my work at the moment is focused on trying to bridge the gap between academia and practice because, you know, I've, I've, I'm obviously a professor. I'm working in an academic institution at the moment, but I come from industry. Yeah. And I still think there is this massive... Uh, you used to be at Frog Design, right? I was at Frog Design, yeah. yeah. So I still think there's a big gap between the way we theorise um, and talk about innovation in academic terms and the way, you know, people actually out in industry have to practice it. Now, one of the biggest problems is this cult of personality. Hmm. And, you know, the media fawns over celebrities that we've already man- mentioned, like, you know, Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman and uh, Steve Jobs is probably the biggest example. You know, I, I typically work with, you know, 50 companies a year, everything from startups to Fortune 100 companies, and just about every one of those companies um, wants to be Apple. Or, want, or their leaders want to be Steve Jobs. And, you know, the biography is still a bestseller. Which means they want to behave badly, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> if you read the biography, it, it often talks about the managerial cruelty of Steve Jobs. He, you know, continually told subordinates that they didn't do anything right. So, you know, I, jo- I often joke, you get a lot of leaders at the moment, you know, thinking that they have to behave like jerks uh, in order to lead innovation in the, in the right. companies. So we have this cult of personality approach and you'll often, you'll often hear this with, uh, if you hear venture capitalists or anyone involved in entrepreneurship interviewed, you know, the question always comes up, you know, what, what do you look for in an entrepreneur or an innovator? And it always focuses on personality traits, like, oh, they've got to be persistent. Uh, they've got to have clarity of vision. Now, my, my problem with personality traits is you cannot teach them. You know, we get we get an intake of MBA students, you know, uh, of you know 400 people, and I'm looking out in that room of 400 students, and you know, they all, they all want to change the world and be innovators. There's so many different personalities represented. And this is a business school, and then within the New York University ecosystem, we've got 16 schools. We've got art schools, we've got law schools, we've got the medical school, we've got the art school, uh, we've got undergrad, we've got grad. Then we got the alumni network. So there's so many different personalities, so many different backgrounds. Now, are we only going to say, well, only those of you who have got clarity of vision and, and you know, and persistence are going to be any as successful as innovators or entrepreneurs? It's absolutely nonsense. Mm. So, you know, going back to the, the metaphor of recipes that we used before when we were talking about how innovation stimulates growth, right? So ideas are the recipes we use to rearrange things to create new value and wealth. The reason I like this metaphor is that innovation is not about necessarily about invention. Anyone can learn how to take ingredients, you know, resources, information, and rearrange these ingredients to, to, into a new recipe, um, to find ways to make those resources, those assets, those ingredients more valuable. Anyone can do that. Just as you look at a show like MasterChef and see how many uh, personalities are on this cooking show. You know, we don't have a problem teaching anyone how to cook. 
you know, we always think, well, if somebody can follow a recipe, if they can read a recipe, they can they can at least get a meal together and cook. <laughs> but for some reason, for innovation and entrepreneurship, we think we can't teach it. And thankfully, this is starting to change. Um, more people are starting this to, you know, view innovation uh, as you would cooking and say, you know, we can teach anyone to rearrange resources uh, to create more value. If you're... Uh the CEO of a big company uh, and uh, you've, you've been in business for 50 years and you've got that niggling feeling that uh, your number might be coming up because the winds of change are, you know, are really stirring your industry. Where do you start? I mean, how do you start to get your people who are not used to the idea of being entrepreneurial and innovative to start generating ideas that may actually save your company? Yeah, this is, it's an important question. There's a lot of organizational behavior in this, but we, I often think in terms of layers. So at the top layer, the, most, the highest level layer, you've got values. So the CEO, the leader, has to be saying that they value innovation. Right. If they don't, it's going to be very hard for ideas to come bottom up through the organization. So that values layer has to be there. Now, as so, I, so, if the, so if the CEO of United, for example, puts out a letter saying what we value is you know, actually getting people to their destination on time, it doesn't really put a high value on innovation, does it? Well, that, that's right. Um, <laughs> I actually find this is changing, though, because a lot of CEOs, again, because of the success of like Google and Apple, are, are running around saying, you know, we want to be the next Google or Apple. They well, at least see innovation is important. So I, I am hearing a lot of that values layer is in place where people are saying, yes, innovation is important to us. But the next layer down is where the problem starts to occur, and that is your metrics, rewards, and incentives. So if you take an honest look at that as a leader, what you'll often find is your reward structure, your incentive structure is set up to encourage um, status quo, excuse me, status quo behavior. You know, they're incentivizing people to perpetuate the status quo. So that's the, that's, that's the big disconnect that's happening between the values, uh, the metrics and rewards. The third layer down is really how they're organizing their organizations. So are they centralized? Are they decentralized? Microsoft had this problem for years. They had a centralized structure where every idea had to go through the CEO, uh, which was Steve Ballmer. So, I mean, you know, I often do this thought experiment. Can you imagine if Jack Dorsey, one of the co-founders of Twitter, was working at Microsoft? And he came up. He came up with this idea for you know 140 characters, and he, was, he had to pitch the idea to Steve Ballmer and say, "Well, you know, it's like email, but you know, it, it does a lot less." And Steve <laughs> Ballmer, you know, he's a business model guy, so he's going to be saying, "Well, what's the revenue model?" And and you know, Jack Dorsey would be going, "Well, you know, I've got no idea. I've got no idea of how even people are going to use this." I mean, it would have been dismissed straight away. So this this command and control model and, and centralized versus decentralized. They're big issues for organisations and leaders to work through. In terms of in terms of a simple tip for that second layer and, and at least how to start thinking about rewarding innovation, this is critical. If you're if your only way of rewarding innovative thinking and new ideas is to implement the ideas that are suggested by people, meaning that's the only way that they feel like their thinking has been valued their motivation is going to dry up pretty quickly. Because right. as an organization, you cannot possibly implement every crazy idea that somebody's coming up with because that would take you out of business straight away. Hmm. So for leaders, it's essential. If they're, if they're serious about developing a culture of innovation, they have to put the emphasis on effort and not result. So they have to find a way of rewarding effort, the thinking effort involved, uh, rather than the result of those thinking efforts. And that sounds counterintuitive because you think, most people think, well, unless an idea is implemented, it has no value. 
But again, going back to our conversation about uh, how innovation drives growth, you have to start treating ideas as, as items. Yeah. Yes, as items of investment in their own right. Right. So your job as a leader is to generate what we often refer to as innovation capital. Mm. Right. So every idea produ- produces a choice. And the more choices you have in your portfolio, you can think of these choices as currency. You, you can buy another choice. And you know, in the, in, there's so much uncertainty for organizations today in this world um, that the old, the old approach to strategy, which was very reductive, meaning you had, you, know, you had to reduce all your options to one direction. So you know, option A is our strategy, Mike. You know, we're setting up the roadmap and this is the direction we're going in. Today, that doesn't make a lot of sense because of the amount of ambiguity and uncertainty. So where there's, where there's more uncertainty uh, in your industry, or if the level of uncertainty is high, you have to make sure that you are getting your organization in a position where you can do either strategy A, strategy B, strategy C, So strategy optionality D. is actually what's key here. Yeah, or any combination of those. So optionality is absolutely key. And innovation capital is your optionality. It means that you have to get your organization in a place where you've got more innovation capital to spend than your competition does. Right. So, in a way, you, you sort of need the decision tree in place without collapsing the branches. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, it's, so, it's far more important for every leader to have an organization full of people ready, willing, and able to contribute new ideas than it is to have one or two successfully implemented new ideas a year. Part of the practical challenge of that is is that often people that succeed with getting a project up in a traditional organization are the ones uh, who, who are just so, um, in a sense, bloody-minded about you know, making time and fighting the politics. Uh, you know, even traditional, you know, even new organizations like Google who experimented with giving people free time have kind of scaled that down. Uh, so, so, I mean, how, how do you sort of build a process where people feel that it's within their job remit to spend time doing things that are unstructured or out of their sort of core job description. Yeah, it, the answer the answer to this is different for every organisation. But fundamentally, organisations need to create a portfolio approach. Now, I know that this sounds trivial, and, and portfolios have been talked about for a long time. But again, most of the organisations I work with do not have a portfolio approach to innovation. They've got a portfolio approach to sustaining innovation or incremental innovation. So if I ask an organization to show me all their their ideas, um, the portfolio is normally chock full of incremental ideas, so ideas that support the current business, product, service, business model. If I ask to see their their portfolio of unconventional strategy options, so strategy options that actually might be in conflict or inconsistent with the current trajectory of the business, Hmm. it's almost non-existent. Right, so every organisation starts to starts to needs to build a portfolio of unconventional strategy options, and they need to be evaluating those strategy options on a regular basis. Meaning they're treating this as a rigorous process and just as important as marketing, finance, operations, everything else they do in the business. And what this does, Mike, is it takes the emphasis off the individuals having to feel like they need to fight the system to get their ideas through. Right. Because if they know a portfolio, if they know their ideas are going into a portfolio, if they know that portfolio is it's the portfolio that has value, not the idea. Exactly right. Right. It's it's not it's not the idea. It's it's the it's a portfolio of ideas. And in what form does that idea need to be in in order to be a valid strategy option? Is is it having a business case or is it having a one page, you know, PowerPoint? Is it having a prototype? Like, I mean, 
what, when you ask to see a great portfolio, what are you actually looking at? Well, actually, it's, it's normally three portfolios. So the first one is a portfolio of ideas. So these are ideas that you really haven't tested or experimented with yet. The second portfolio is your experimental portfolio. So these are where you're taking key ideas out or insights that you want to experiment with, and you're finding ways to do low-cost mini pilots and experiments. And then from those results, you've got a venture portfolio. So these are where you're looking to scale up these ideas into real ventures. But one of, one of the... The areas where this is done poorly is in the idea portfolio because if you look at the results of most brainstorming sessions in organisations, uh, they'll have a brainstorming session, all the ideas are written up on whiteboards and then they'll bring in the intern who has to transcribe the ideas into an Excel spreadsheet. Right. So all the ideas are captured in little bite-sized chunks of one or two keywords in an Excel spreadsheet. And then that like, Excel like spreadsheet... Like coffee cup slogans. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> not even that, Mark. It's only, you know, two words. Not even enough effort to put into a slogan. But then they're emailed around the company and people are looking at this spreadsheet. And, of course, they don't have any, all the depth and texture and the context within which this idea was originally generated is lost. So, I, you know, it's no wonder that ideas can't get traction in organisations. So one of the, the first thing just to get get into the discipline of actually first of all giving giving an idea a name and again this sounds trivial but a name is the first action that takes an abstract idea and makes it concrete. What so do you mean by name? I thought like a project code word. Just give it a name. Not a project code word. Give every idea its own name. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the name is, it doesn't have to be a consumer facing uh, brand name but it makes it concrete. As soon as something has a name, it's concrete in everyone's mind. The second thing is write out a brief description of the idea. Uh, and that's normally done badly as well, but <laughs> you, can, you can do that pretty effectively in one sentence. You've just got to make sure you're labeling it in the right way, uh, you're describing who the, who's going to use the idea, you're describing one, one key benefit that the idea delivers to that user, and then finally, most importantly, and this is what most people leave out, You've got to describe the method, so how are you delivering that benefit to the user? And that's all in one sentence. And then finally, um, make an effort to visualise the idea. Again, visualisation is important because it takes something abstract and makes it concrete. And most organisations don't have the discipline to even go that far and visualise early stage ideas. But you know those, those three things alone, so giving it a name, giving it a proper description with those four components I mentioned, and then visualising it, will help your ideas get traction uh, in that first portfolio. And it's essential. Luke, it's been great catching up. I'm really looking forward to reading the next edition of your book. And uh, of course, uh, seeing you is always a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.